Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week's topic, Just War Theory. When is military force justified? Find out what the church teaches. Then it's on to the newly ordained Holy Cross priests and deacons. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you again for joining us. Appreciate it, as always. You're welcome, Kyle. How are you doing? I'm doing well. September Things cool down a little bit. Uh, do you have a favorite month? I like the summer in general. Yeah. I like hot weather. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Can it be too hot, though? Like, if you're down south in the summer and yes, you're Yes, like, if it's hot and humid, that's, that's a problem. Okay. But I like go swimming and, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm not a fan of the winter. Okay. <laughs> fall is fine. I like the fall. Yeah. You know, it's beautiful football season. Yep. A little limiting this year, though. Right. <laughs> you know, I found out, a week, well, I guess it was a week or two ago that, you know, no Notre Dame tickets, you know, so of course I wasn't Even for you. Even for me. Oh. But I always have friends and family who come for games, uh-huh. you know, I get, I get tickets, but um, so I'll miss that, you yeah. know, but watch on TV, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well. We're kind of continuing a little bit of our conversation from last week. We talked a little bit about military and how, you know, people that make sacrifices and are willing to do so. It's, it's such a, a great thing, and we want to honor that and, and be grateful for it. But at the same time, we need to be careful about what we're supporting when we're supporting the military. I think there's yeah. just war. Uh, some people might even say that that's not the right word for it. But just war theory has been around for a long time. Oh, yeah. I think one thing you had mentioned wasn't there. Was there a different name for it? No, I think uh, just war is is the common term. Okay, exactly. And um, traditionally, we've spoken of it uh-huh. in those terms: just war tradition or just war theory. Okay, or theories, because there's not just one. 
But the last episode, we were talking about uh, nationalism and patriotism. Uh-huh. So, you know, I think that's an important distinction to keep in mind here because when we think of a soldier going to war, if the war is just, we can speak of that as a patriotic duty. Sure. However, if it's not a just war, especially if it's a war that's inspired by nationalism, let's mm. say an aggressive war, mm-hmm. obviously, then there should be conscientious objection because because if, if the war is indeed unjust. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really interesting to look at church teaching on this. I mean, we could spend hours on this topic. There's so much been written. We have a tradition that goes back to St. Augustine, especially his famous book, The City of God. He talks about war and peace. Hmm. But even before Augustine, this idea of a just war was discussed by philosophers, Greek philosophers, Roman philosophers. But really in the Christian tradition, it really began with uh, with St. Augustine. As you can expect, St. Thomas Aquinas, centuries later, developed it even further. He used a lot of Augustine. So we could talk a little bit about that, but maybe it's most helpful to look at Basically, what is the church's teaching? And as always, we look at the catechism of the Catholic Church. And as you might guess, this topic is covered under the fifth commandment. Okay. Thou shalt not kill. Uh If you read that section of the catechism, and I, I encourage people, there's a section called Safeguarding Peace. And I think that's an important way to look at this. Right. I mean, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. So the war makers are not blessed, okay? Right. So we recall that commandment of uh, the Decalogue, you shall not kill. And within that, it's important that we, we see, therefore, that our respect for human life requires peace, and therefore we should work for peace. Jesus himself is called the Prince of Peace. And we should avoid war. Mm -hmm. That's so important. So when you look, though, at the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill, we're talking about the uh, prohibition of intentional destruction of human life. Mm -hmm. All governments and all citizens are obliged to work to, to avoid war. Of course, we know that throughout human history, war is a fact. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the church had to deal with this, you know, how, how can we deal with this reality? And basically, the church gives some very rigorous criteria or strict conditions for the legitimate defense by military force. It's a very, very serious decision for a nation to go to war. The question is, what makes it morally legitimate or illegitimate? And this is where we get into the just war theory. Obviously, we do allow for the right of Mm self-defense. Okay, even when we're not talking about war, just as individuals. I mean, if someone comes at me or at my family with a deadly weapon and is about to use it, we can defend ourselves with lethal force. So when you look at communities or nations in this sense, I think you can look at it the same way. So we can say that it's a defensive, uh, has to be something that's defensive, not aggressive. Right. Therefore, we look at what are the conditions. 
And I'll read a quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 2309. Okay. 2309. There are four elements or conditions for the use of force to be morally legitimate. And basically, these are the traditional elements in what is called the just war doctrine. And number one, the damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain. Hmm. Okay, this is really important. You know, it's not just going to war if, you know, it's not something that's a real grave act of aggression. Mm -hmm. It has to be something that's grave, that's lasting, that's certain for it to be just. Um, so the presumption is against war. That's the important thing. The presumption is against war. So we're talking here about legitimate defense. The second condition is all other means of putting an end to it must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. Mm -hmm. Basically, we speak of this as last resort. Right. War can only be a last resort. So you try to avoid war as much as possible. Diplomacy, mm -hmm. whatever. You can have other ways if there's been some type of, of injustice or some kind of threat. You can have other means, like sometimes there are embargoes against the nation mm -hmm. or other they don't often work. They often, like the embargo against Cuba, for example, the popes have asked us to lift that embargo because it really hasn't done any good. Uh -huh. It's hurt the common people of Cuba. Yeah. It hasn't really changed the government's actions. So I mentioned embargo, but just to be realistic about it, it doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. The third condition, there must be serious prospects of success. If it's going to be something futile, it, it shouldn't be undertaken. Fourth, and this is probably the most difficult, the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. And then the catechism says, the power of modern means of destruction weighs very heavily in evaluating this condition. Now, this condition is often called the principle of proportionality, mm -hmm. okay? So if there's going to, you're going to use arms to eliminate an evil, to resist aggression, but if, it's, if your use of arms is gonna pr make things worse, then it's not just. Mm -hmm. and, and this is where it becomes very difficult today because of nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. because of biological weapons, chemical weapons, the weapons of mass destruction. That's why the church says that, you know, we have to weigh very heavily this condition. And some have come to the conclusion that because of the existence of weapons of mass destruction, this condition can never be met. So that's debated a lot. Um, so you have to have a just cause, okay? There has to be a real danger and a certain danger, and you're trying to confront that. And your goal, your intention, is to protect innocent life. Thomas Aquinas talks about the importance of right intention. You know, you can only conduct a war to, 
if you have a just cause. Mm-hmm. Okay, so intention is really important. Thomas Aquinas also spoke about just war can only be waged by one who has the authority to do so. So those responsible for public order, okay, the legitimate government. And in the case of the United States, an act of war is an act of Congress. That would be the competent authority. And I mentioned, you know, it says there must be serious prospects of success. The outcome can't be disproportionate or futile, you know. Um, Is that just a numbers game? Like, you kill a thousand of our people, we can't kill 2,000 of your people? Or is it uh, innocent life versus aggressive? Well, if they kill an innocent life and we kill 10 military or whatever. Yeah, I think it's important to consider there's two aspects of, of just war. One is basically what we call jus ad bellum. Is it just to go to war? Jus, it's Latin, jus ad bellum. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you're going to go to war, let's say, and use nuclear, uh, use a nuclear bomb, that's already violating Okay, because that's going to produce a graver disorder. Uh-huh. I mean, it could it could result in the uh, destruction of millions of people, innocent people. Right. Now, the other aspect of justice concerning war is what we usually call in Latin "jus in bello." That means during the war. Okay, justice during the war, and that gets to maybe what you're re- referring to. And it's really important to understand what the church means by justice during a war, the conduct of the war, if it's going to be just. You can't target innocent people or non-combatants, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, how you treat wounded soldiers and prisoners, you know, the respect, the, the humane treatment of prisoners of war, for example. That's all part of conducting a just war. So you could go to war for a just cause, but then carry out a war unjustly. Sure. So you have to be really careful. Can I, um, can I ask a question? Yeah. You said you can't target innocent people, but I can imagine a scenario where you're targeting the terrorist in their home, and there's a chance that there'll be innocent people nearby when that home is being bombed. You're not targeting the innocent people, but there's a chance and you, you may be able to put a number on that, but there's a chance that innocent people will be killed. And those are the very difficult decisions for military people to make. They should do everything they can to avoid what you can call collateral damage, sure. the killing of others. And sometimes that happens unintentionally. Mm-hmm. If one foresees that, yeah, by attacking this particular site, there's probably going to be a couple hundred people killed innocent people, non-combatants killed, then one shouldn't attack. Sure. There's a very strong uh, sentence in the catechism that says, every act of war directed to the indiscriminate destruction of whole cities or vast areas with their inhabitants is a crime against God and man, which merits firm and unequivocal condemnation. So, When you think of, and I especially think of things like atomic, biological, and chemical weapons, that's a danger of modern warfare. And it could lead to the indiscriminate destruction of whole cities, vast areas with their inhabitants. And the church says that is a crime against God and man. 
So that's why that fourth condition that I mentioned, proportionality, is, is really important. So both in jus ad bellum, in, in deciding whether going to war is just, or jus in bello, deciding whether a war is being conducted justly or not, it's clear that the church is concerned about both and the effects of both. It's always forbidden to kill or injure an innocent person during war. If a bullet goes astray, or if, like you said, there's, let's say, a bomb dropped on a military installation and an innocent person is killed, those are not intended. Mm -hmm. um, but given the fact that we have this, the dangers of modern weapons, yeah. you know, the calculation is such that, you, you know, that's why it really has to be carefully looked at and very heavily calculated and evaluated. There will be some who, who say um, that this has raised the threshold for a just war. And I think, hmm. I think that's true. I think John Paul saw that. Pope Benedict and Pope Francis have also seen because of these new weapons that can cause such widespread destruction, the bar has been raised. Making it more difficult to justify yes. the yes. war. And then there's the whole question of preventive war or a preemptive war, mm -hmm. preemptive strike. This became, I don't know if you remember back in the, uh, the Gulf War, the second Gulf War, mm -hmm. the, going, you know, the, the belief by President George W. Bush that there were weapons of mass destruction and right. all that, and so the U.S. attacked preemptively. That was condemned by Cho Pope John Paul II. Okay. He did a lot of diplomacy to try to prevent that war against Iraq. A lot of Catholics in the United States disagreed with the Pope at the mm -hmm. time. I think it's proven that he was right. Yeah. First of all, they didn't find the weapons of mass destruction, but then the years of bloody conflict afterwards and you know all the problems, the rise of ISIS, for example, came after huh. that. You know, so so all the problems in a sense you could say John Paul was like a prophet regarding that, that we shouldn't have shouldn't have gone to war. And why did John Paul at the time say that it was unjust. He never really, uh, that I know of, listed what the conditions for a just war that weren't being met. Okay. But I would surmise, if I had to do a moral analysis, that the church never talks about a preventive war. It would seem to me and other writers that I've, uh, that I've read only would see a preemptive strike like that as being legitimate if the danger was imminent, if it was really serious, very grave and imminent. Right. And I would say that now some might disagree who are listening, but I don't think we had knowledge that it was a grave and imminent danger. Right. And while it actually showed that there weren't even weapons of mass destruction found, but I don't think it met that criteria of being a grave and imminent danger. But I mean... You could say if they did have weapons of mass destruction, so do we. We have weapons of mass destruction. Do we want people to preeminently bomb us because we have weapons of mass right. destruction? No. Right. Right. So I, I realize it's it's different dynamics, terrorists versus right. the U.S. or or whatever yeah. the situation. And I think also we have to be careful of making judgments based off of the knowledge that we have, knowing that the president of the United States probably has intel and knowledge that right. we will never have access to. Uh, but at the same time, I think we have to do, 
especially if somebody is in the military or is in the position of having to act on some of these commands that, that come down to make the best judgment and understanding just war theory and what, what does constitute to that can help us to make those decisions. Can you give an example of a war that was just? So you just gave Maybe. an example of one that, that was condemned as yeah. being Well, unjust. I just want to add something before I get to that because it's very important sure. what you said. You know, sometimes, and I remember back at that time thinking to myself when John Paul was condemning or was trying to prevent the war in Iraq, and he sent Cardinal Laghi, who was actually a friend of the Bush family, okay. to meet with them. And, and, and I would say President Bush was very concerned about the Pope's viewpoint and I think was listening, but he decided against it. So there was all this diplomatic effort going on. But who makes the decision? And this gets back to what Thomas Aquinas says. It's for a just war, the determination is left to the civil authorities, okay? It's the legitimate government. And in this case, you know, the, and even the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, when it, after it lists those conditions for a just war, in the Catechism it says in number 2310, public authorities in this case have the right and duty to impose on citizens the obligations necessary for national defense. Hmm. But prior to that, it so says... So a draft is justified in yeah, certain cases, at exactly. least. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. But the paragraph before that says, and this is more to the point, the evaluation of these conditions, those four conditions for moral legitimacy, belongs to the prudential judgment of those who have responsibility for the common good. Hmm. So... Who's making the determination? In the case of, of, let's say, you know, it has to be the legitimate government. That goes back to what Thomas Aquinas said. In the case of the United States, it's the president and Congress. Mm -hmm. Okay? The president asks Congress to declare war, or the Congress declares war without the president's request. But that doesn't mean that their request is just. But they have the decision. They have to make what's called a prudential judgment. So this is a matter of prudence. They bear the responsibility for making sure that a war is just before they fight it. It's not just like, okay, they make a decision because they simply think it's the right thing to do. No. They have to really study it to discern. Now, why is this important? They can be mistaken in their prudential judgments. They may consider a particular war to be just when in fact it may be unjust. But I think one of the things is that, as you mentioned, they would have more intelligence. They would have more knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, you know, secret intelligence, for example. So I think in some, in many ways, we or many Americans trusted that that intelligence that President Bush and Congress had about Saddam Hussein possessing weapons of mass destruction, we kind of felt, okay, so he's a threat. Um, but again, it wouldn't have been, I don't think, a grave and imminent threat. Okay. Okay. So that I think they would have. Uh, so anyhow, I'm getting back. What was your question again, Kyle? An example of a just war. Oh, I think our participation in World War II, uh -huh. very clearly a just war. I mean... We had aggression from Germany and Japan, and it was a, the damage inflicted was certainly lasting, grave, and certain. I mean, Hitler was yeah. overrunning countries, and Japan attacked us at Pearl Harbor, so there were no other means 
I think it was last resort. You know, Hitler and uh, the Emperor of Japan, they weren't open to diplomacy. It would not have been practical or effective at the time. There were prospects, serious prospects of success, and in fact, we were successful, mm -hmm. not just the United States, but the coalition of allies. And even though there were evils that resulted from our going to war from the use of arms, they were not graver than the evil that was being eliminated. I mean, we had, you know, Hitler and the Japanese overrunning innocent, killing innocent lives, setting up concentration camps. I mean, the evil was tremendous. Now, the nuclear bomb, they're going to yep. ask. I, right. I could see that. <laughs> was that exactly what you were going to ask? I was waiting for it. Okay, there's a lot of difference of opinion here. I think from reading speeches that the popes have given at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Pope John Paul II and, and Pope Francis, uh, other church documents, I would say that was immoral. Mm -hmm. I think the, the numbers of innocent people, I forget the numbers that were killed. It was over 100,000, I know, were, mm -hmm. were killed by the innocent people, uh, by those nuclear bombs. Now, the other argument that we hear in response is, the, well, more people would have been killed. That helped to end the war more quickly. That right. would be the counter argument. But, you know, the thing is, when you look at that, uh, that condition that we talked about, jus in bello, to be just in your conduct of the war, okay, mm -hmm. the war was just, the war was just against Japan, against Germany. But during the war, the conduct in this case of dropping atomic bombs, which destroyed whole cities, that was not justified. Mm -hmm. I, I think that would be the judgment of, of the church and the popes. Well, it gets into the ends and the means because you could say, whatever the number is, say it's 150,000 innocent people died but 150,000 innocent people would have died anyway if we hadn't done that. But there's a difference between I caused 150,000 people to die or somebody else did it and it could have prevented had we done it. I mean, right. there's a difference between killing somebody and somebody being killed because of you didn't right. kill other people or something like that. Right. Yeah, I mean, the ends don't justify the means, and I think using nuclear weapons is, I, I can't see that as ever being justified. So that gets into the debate, and I've, I've kind of heard this within Catholic circles, people de debating this as well, of is it morally just to even have a nuclear weapon? If you're not morally just to ever use it, then is it even morally just to have it? And it kind of becomes a, a game of, well, you have one, so I have to have one, and then they have to have one because we have one. And then we have all of these nuclear weapons accumulating all over the world that hopefully nobody would ever use. But is, I guess, maybe the question is, is it okay to have things as deterrents that are morally unjust? Well... I may as well quote the catechism because okay. it deals with this issue. In, in number 2315, 2315, it says, the accumulation of arms strikes many as a paradoxically suitable way 
of deterring potential adversaries from war. They see it as the most effective means of ensuring peace among nations. This method of deterrence gives rise to strong moral reservations. Right. The arms race does not ensure peace. Far from eliminating the causes of war, it risks aggravating them. Spending enormous sums to produce ever new types of weapons impedes efforts to aid needy populations. Hmm. It thwarts the development of peoples. Overarmament multiplies reasons for conflict and increases the danger of escalation. And then the next paragraph, 2316, says... The production and the sale of arms affect the common good of nations and of the international community. Hence, public authorities have the right and duty to regulate them. The short-term pursuit of private or collective interests cannot legitimate undertakings that promote violence and conflict among nations and compromise the international juridical order. I remember John Paul and actually the U.S. bishops kind of very cautiously with strong moral reservations allowing the possession of nuclear weapons for deterrence purposes Mm -hmm. that was years ago and they saw it more as temporary but the goal needed to be to eliminate the weapons arms control reduction of nuclear weapons etc and of course we know that did take place between the u.s and ussr and it continued but then You know, it's been interrupted at various times. So I think it was with these strong moral reservations that we're in like a new situation today and say, well, it really, we still have this problem. We still have the accumulation of arms. I think Pope Francis, I think he has very, very strong reservations. I'd have to look at his writings. But we've gotten to the point that I think there are many Catholic theologians who will say that even their possession at this point you know, is immoral. Right. But I don't think there's a definitive teaching on that at this point. I think there's strong, you know, views on both sides and the, the idea of, of deterrence. Many are questioning that at this point. On the other hand, there's some fear of unilateral disarmament. You know, would that empower a, an enemy to, to then wage war? Right. Uh, so this is, it's a tough issue. Yeah. And I think it goes back to something we've mentioned multiple times on this show is the dignity of the person and not to just think of people as numbers or as enemies even all the time, but as people with dignity made in the image and likeness of God. And we need to do whatever we can to promote life and peace and prevent death and war. And I think the the groundwork for the just war theory is is a way to apply that teaching and, and try to minimize the, the death of especially innocent people, but even our enemies. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, one question I'd like to see the candidates for public office be asked, because, you know, this has not been a big topic in recent years as far as foreign policy. Right. But if I was a reporter or I was someone who was asking them, I would want to know their position on the uh, reduction of, of uh, weapons, not just nuclear weapons, but also biological and chemical weapons mm-hmm. that are they, the government should be actively working towards 
the elimination right. of these weapons. And of course, the United Nations as an inter international organization has a role in this as well. But that's where I think there is a moral obligation on the part of public officials to work towards disarmament. And, you know, this sale of arms to, you know, and spreading of arms to a lot of these developing countries and all that. I mean, the Pope Francis has been really strong against that because when we're arming these more fragile nations, mm -hmm. then, you know, that creates new dangers in certain countries of the world. And we've seen where wars have broken out, where civil wars have broken out, for mm -hmm. example, and using these weapons that they've purchased from the, the so-called superpowers or producers of, of arms. Right. Even conventional weapons I'm talking about. Sure, sure. All right. Well, if you have any question for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260 436-9598. And we'll talk about the newly ordained Holy Cross priests and deacons and the relationship between the Holy Cross and our diocese coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. When you're worried about your health, you go see a doctor. Worried about finances? Talk to the helpful folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our savings? Notre Dame FCU. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. We were talking about just war theory. And I think also there's been such efforts to promote peace as well. And I feel like that's kind of a movement that's happening within our church and, and hopefully outside of the church as well. Yeah, you know, one of the important things I think that's happened since the Second Vatican Council and in more recent years is is working through peace-building efforts, looking at the underlying conditions that can lead to war. So, and trying to, for example, help in nations where there are where there's extreme poverty or there's certain injustices mm -hmm. that can lead to war, get at the very causes and also to build those kind of good solidarity between people of differences, maybe of different nationalities or whatever. You know, one of the works that I've seen up close is CRS and its peace-building efforts in various countries, mm -hmm. including in the Holy Land, right. where there's such animosity between Israelis and Palestinians, and, and especially educating young people in how to avoid conflict, how to build relationships with those who maybe have been traditional enemies. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really, really important. I mean, we see the peace studies, for example, at the University of Notre Dame. I mean, this is what they're about. Um, there are uh, efforts of the Vatican to, you know, and the San Egidio community and others who are working to, to make a fertile ground right. for nonviolence. And um, so I think those are, we, we shouldn't forget that. And it's not just avoiding war. It's also building peace right. through these really important efforts to build solidarity among peoples. It's kind of like preventative medicine. Exactly, exactly. All right, well, speaking of Notre Dame, you recently celebrated the ordination of some Holy Cross priests and deacons as well? I did. Four new priests and four new deacons on September 5th at the Basilica of the Sacred Heart. At Notre Dame, I often celebrate ordinations for the Congregation of Holy Cross. They have a few of their own bishops who are Holy Cross priests who were ordained bishops. Sometimes they'll come right. back and do an ordination, but but I do quite a few of them. And 
How is a religious order's ordination different than a diocesan ordination? Well, it's still the ordination of the priesthood. The only thing I can think of is that might be different is I don't ask them, do you promise respect and obedience to me and my successors? I ask them, do you promise respect and obedience to your religious superior? Uh Uh-huh because they are members of a religious community. Right. But other than that, I think it's basically the same. Okay. Yeah. And you know, the Congregation for Holy, of Holy Cross is so prominent here in our diocese. I mean, obviously, the University of Notre Dame, Holy Cross staffs a number of our parishes on the South Bend side of the diocese. Mm-hmm. The congregation also includes... You know, we have the brothers, the Holy Cross brothers and Holy Cross College. We have the Holy Cross sisters and St. Mary's College. And then the U.S. province of priests and brothers at Notre Dame and the ones who staff many of our our parishes. They also have been a really important part of the history of our diocese, especially Catholic education in our diocese, because that's one of the major apostolates of the Holy Cross congregation going back to their founder, who I have great admiration for and devotion to. His Hmm. name, he was a priest named Basil Moreau. Mm -hmm. He was beatified in the year 2007, so he's blessed Basil Moreau. And every time I celebrate an ordination, other times as well, for the Holy Cross priests, I'll quote from blessed Basil Moreau because I love his spirituality. Well, what was his spirituality? Really, it's part of the French school. Uh, Maybe let me tell you a little bit about his life, and you'll understand a little bit more. He was born in 1799, so that was you know not long after the French Revolution. So it was a time of turmoil. There was the Reign of Terror. I mean, many priests who were killed, sisters killed, churches destroyed, monasteries, convents closed, etc. So the French Revolution, you know, after the church after that was suppressed very much. So he was born at that time, and he, his parents were very devout. And he he was born in a little town in France, little village near near Le Mans. He was one of fourteen children, and he entered the seminary. He felt the call to the priesthood, and he was educated by the Sulpicians. And this is an order that really uh, Jean Jacques Ollier was the the founder, and. A lot of them were part of what we call the French school of spirituality. It's really, really good, especially its emphasis on the incarnation Hmm. of Christ. And their whole theology of priesthood is really very beautiful. That could be a whole other episode. But anyhow, I love that spirituality. And he was ordained a priest for the Diocese of Le Mans in 1821. And then his ministry, he was a teacher in the seminaries. You know, they needed more priests because a lot of them, a lot were exiled during the revolution and after, many were killed. So what happened with the shortage of priests and a lot of the religious who were forced into exile is there were a lot of people illiterate about their faith. You know, they they weren't well catechized. They didn't weren't even receiving the sacraments because... You know, the priests were were gone. Mm. So one of the things was to restore the church, and that was really part of his life and ministry. Father Moreau, as a young priest, and really throughout his life, was a a preacher. He would go around preaching parish missions, celebrating the sacraments. He was kind of an itinerant in some ways to these villages and towns that lacked priests or where the faith formation was neglected. And he was a very good professor of theology. So he founded, he was a priest, but then he founded a group of priests within the Diocese of Le Mans 
to assist the diocesan clergy in reinvigorating the church, especially preaching parish missions. So he'd have this group of priests, and he called them the Society of Auxiliary Priests, who'd go around doing these parish missions. While he was doing that, there was another priest of the Diocese of Le Mans, an old, older priest, by the name of Father Dujarier. Well, Father Dujarier had founded a group of young men to help reestablish the Catholic schools and to teach in the schools throughout that region. They were really what became the Holy Cross Brothers. They were called the Brothers of St. Joseph. Well, as he got elderly, Father Dujarier, he turned this responsibility over to Father Moreau. So, so Father Moreau then had these brothers, but also the priests, these auxiliary priests. Well, with all of this developing, he made a religious community out of it, basically. Uh-huh. And it's called the Congregation of Holy Cross, these priests and brothers. They united, and uh, the two societies became one community, the Congregation of Holy Cross. Why is it called Holy Cross? Because the neighborhood in Le Mans, where they were situated, was the neighborhood of Holy Cross, Santa, I don't know, I don't know French, Saint Croix, I think okay. you say it. There was a, a very old church there, 12th century church, called Our Lady of Holy Cross, Notre Dame de Santa Croix. Huh. Saint Croix. And that became the mother church, it's still there, of the Congregation of Holy Cross. It was approved by the church, so you had Father Dujarier, who started the brothers, but now they're part all under Father Moreau, and he also, Father Moreau, wanted a third society within the Congregation of Sisters. And he kind of saw this as modeling the Holy Family Hmm. of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. So you have the brothers kind of under the patronage of St. Joseph, you have the sisters, under the patroness of Our Lady and the priests under the Sacred Heart of Jesus. It's a beautiful spirituality of the Holy Family. To this day, we have, you know, the priest brothers and sisters of Holy Cross, kind of the Holy Cross family. The general superior, uh, Father Epping, is in Rome, but he doesn't really have jurisdiction over the sisters, just over the priests and brothers. I think canonically, they didn't allow the congregation of religious women to be under a male congregation, so they have their own. So the general superior of the Sisters of Holy Cross are at St. Mary's at Notre Dame. But actually, there's three distinct congregations of Holy Cross Sisters. There's a group in France called the Marianites of Holy Cross. The ones at Notre Dame or at St. Mary's are the Sisters of the Holy Cross. And then in Canada, there's a third group of sisters, the Sisters of Holy Cross. I always get this mixed up because what's the difference in the title? Canada, they're Sisters of Holy Cross. In the United States, they're sisters of the Holy Cross. <laughs> so, um, Big but anyhow, uh, Big the uh, it's it's really an itch, uh, the congregation has been you know grew. I mentioned education as a primary apostolate. That's really Father Moreau's lasting legacy. He wrote very important and influential documents on Christian education. I've read his many of his homilies, his sermons, his letters. So if you look at some of the institutions, well, very early on, they came to the United States. Father Soren was sent here by Father Moreau and started Notre Dame. We have other, uh, through, the, th- through the decades, there's other institutions of higher learning in the United States, like the University of Portland, uh, Kings, mm-hmm. it, that's in, in Oregon. There's uh, King's College in, 
in Pennsylvania, and there's um, Stonehill College in Massachusetts. So they have they have these colleges and universities. They also staff many high schools, especially the brothers did, and so did the sisters, and served in parishes and in grade schools as well. Plus, they had great missionary work, uh, especially in countries like Bangladesh, very much uh, missionaries. So that's another part of the apostolate of the Holy Cross congregation is the missions, and in Africa and in South America as well. So we see the sisters and brothers and the priests have established various institutions in poor areas of the world, Uh, so not just the United States. Um, So... That's just very quickly, you know, um, but um, we're very blessed in our diocese to have uh, the Congregation of Holy Cross, and they've been an important part of our history from the beginning, from the very beginning. All right. Well, speaking of Holy Cross, Holy Cross College sponsors our text line. So if you have any questions for Bishop, you can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And thank you again for another great episode. Can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.